Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text today is going to be taken from the reading we heard in the Gospel of Mark. You may be seated. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks that you have sent your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to us to be our Savior. Not merely to shine in glory, but Lord, to take our sins to the cross. And today, Lord, as we remember and, and think on the transfiguration, we pray that you would fix our hearts and our minds on Jesus so that we would hear him only. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever seen a movie uh, that you expected to go one way, but it was totally different from everything else you expected? Like you went to see the movie and maybe you half paid attention to the previews or you weren't really sure what, what, what it was about, uh, but when you left, you were like, I did not see that coming at all. This happened to me one time. I was at a uh, pastor's retreat of sorts and I had an evening to myself and so I decided to go to my hotel room and watch a movie. And I wanted a fun movie, like an adventurous kind of movie, like a, like a kid's Harry Potter or, you know, a Pirates of the Caribbean kind of fun movie like this. And so I sat down, and I had heard of this movie called uh, The Hunger Games. And so I went to watch The Hunger Games. Now, if you know anything about The Hunger Games, you know that it is not like Harry Potter at all, all right? If you don't know The Hunger Games, Here's what Hunger Games is. It is a uh, dystopian book series about how the government forces representatives from their given communities to send uh, two children to fight to the death so that uh, their communities can have more food for the next year. Um, it's murderous and terrifying, and it wasn't fun like at all. Okay, I was not expecting uh, what I saw right there. But if you had asked me that afternoon, before I went to watch the movie. Hey, what's Hunger Games about? Is that something we could take the kids to see? I would have said to you, oh yeah, that's a great kids movie. Why don't you go and see that and tell me how it went? And if you had done that, you would have called me the next day and said, you know, you weren't quite right. We weren't ready for what we were about to see. Your misguided advice did not prepare us for what we were going to face. Well, if we think about that this morning, I think that's kind of the reason today why Jesus says to the disciples after they come down from the mountain of transfiguration, this, this glorious scene where Jesus is shining forth and the Father is speaking and Moses and Elijah are there, I think this is why Jesus tells the disciples not to say anything about what they saw until after the resurrection. Because, you see, they don't know the whole story. They don't know how everything is going to go. What they saw there on the Mount of Transfiguration was a preview of sorts, a glimpse of something that was to come, but it was not the whole story. They were not to speak of Jesus until they knew him in a far more glorious and surprising way. But I can't imagine that that was really hard for them to do. I got to imagine that it was really difficult for them to stay quiet about what they saw there on the mountain. I mean, just let's, let's just review what took place. I mean, this is a hard sermon, you guys, every year to preach, because I always think to myself, like, it's so hard to imagine what it was like. It's hard to paint this picture, but we, we do our best. You got Peter, James, and John, and they hike up a mountain, and for the most part, we know what that looks like. Uh, but they're on a mountain there with Jesus, and suddenly, he is beaming forth light. It's, it's almost incomprehensible to us to see a human being beaming forth light. 
And as he's beaming forth this light, suddenly he's speaking with Moses and with Elijah, a couple guys who, who really haven't been around a whole lot lately. They've been gone for, you know, a few hundred years. And as they're speaking there, Moses and, uh, excuse me, Peter, James, and John are just in awe of what they see. And I wonder, like, what it was like. Every time I read this account, there's all these questions that come up in my head. Like, I want to know, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Like, did they have name tags on? Did they have, like, t-shirts? Like, how do they know? And then what are they talking about? What's, like, the detail of the conversation? We know they're speaking to a certain extent of, of Jesus' trek to the cross. But what were Moses and Elijah like? What did they look like? What was it like to see them in that moment? Were they floating? Were they standing? What was going on? And it's interesting because as I read this account, I realized this week, as I study this, I have all kinds of questions. And very few of them have to do with Jesus. Maybe that's part of the reason why the disciples were not supposed to speak of this event. Because they too quickly become distracted from the main focus the main focus of Moses and Elijah, the main focus, who was Jesus. And Peter was so dialed in, Peter loved what he was seeing so much, that he wanted to stay longer. And so he suggested something. He said, why don't we build three tents? Jesus will build one for you, and then next to that we'll build one for Moses, and then next to that we'll build one for Elijah. And so what we'll have here is these three equal tents. Three tents for you, three great prophets to dwell in, and all sorts of people can come and see their glorified heroes right here. And in doing this, Mark tells us, Peter had no idea what he was saying. Because notice what Peter is doing here. He's saying, look, Jesus, you must be pretty amazing. You must be so amazing that you are equal to Moses and Elijah. And that demonstrates that Peter doesn't get what's going on at all. Not only does he not know how the story's going to go, Peter doesn't even understand the main character. Because he's looking at Jesus as though he's nothing more than a mere prophet from the Old Testament, on par with Moses and Elijah. What's more, Peter has seemed to be awfully confused about who Jesus is and what he came to do. If you read the section just before this, Jesus has asked Peter, who do people say that I am? And Peter has said to him, you are the Christ. But Peter's understanding of what that means was entirely misguided. Because by Christ, by Messiah, Peter meant you are a political savior. You've come to drive out the Romans and to establish sort of this Israel power throughout the world. You have come to sort of get all the votes for our party, Jesus. That's why you're here. And he saw him as a political savior. And now he sees him as a great prophet. And in all of this, Peter is far short of the truth. And all of this, Peter's misunderstanding who Jesus truly is and why he's truly come. Because he's no mere political savior. He's no uh, mere prophet. He is God in human flesh, the Son of God, who has come to be the Savior of the world. And Peter does not grasp this. It is a constant danger for us to do this to Jesus to try and think we understand Jesus and who he is apart from his word and try and, and, and turn Jesus into something that we think is about as good as it can possibly be. We have the same temptations as Peter that we want to turn him into nothing more than a great teacher, a great prophet, a great rabbi. We want to turn him into our sort of own political savior who's going to get rid of our enemies and establish our party as the most powerful party. And we're going to watch that happen, by the way, 
all year because we're in an election year, all right? And we know what we're going to witness here is how all these politicians running for office are going to try and enlist Jesus and his church to their side. Republicans and Democrats and every other party is going to have some tent that they build and try and convince you that Jesus wants to dwell in that tent because he's on their side. And so you should be on their side. And if you're truly a Christian, you're going to vote this way. We try and turn Jesus into our mascot, our political savior. And in a world where we've made literally everything political, Jesus will be enlisted to pick a side. The Bible has a word for this. It's, it's called idolatry. And such idolatry clearly demonstrates that we don't worship Jesus according to his word, nor do we submit to him, but we try and use Jesus. We try and manipulate Jesus. We try and get Jesus to work for us. We value our politics, our system, our ideals above Christ. St. Augustine has a marvelous phrase. He says this, if Christ is, not uh, excuse me, Christ is not valued at all, unless Christ is valued above all. And if we're trying to get Jesus to submit to something, to make him equal to what we think is great, we do not know what we are saying. And we need to be silenced so that we can finally get to the place where we listen to him. We don't use him. We submit to him. We follow him. We don't enlist him as our mascot. This is what Peter is brought to realize there on the mountain as he's trying to make Jesus equal with Moses and Elijah. And then suddenly the great glory cloud of God descends upon the mountain. And Peter and James and John are, are caught up in this cloud. And suddenly they hear the voice of God and God tells them who Jesus really is. That he's no mere Moses or Elijah. He's no mere political savior or prophet. God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Because what he has to say may not match what you want him to say. What he has to say may not line up with your will and your wants. What he has to say is far more important than you can possibly imagine. In fact, I think it's so interesting that it's Moses and Elijah who are speaking with Jesus. These are the two sort of figureheads of the Old Testament. And everything that the Old Testament said was about Jesus. Everything it said built up to Christ and finds its fulfillment in Christ so that when Christ finally shows up, we have everything Moses and Elijah ever spoke about. So now it's time to stop and listen to him. So you have the scene and this cloud and the voices and it's just all so overwhelming. And then suddenly, looking around, Mark says, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead brings us back to our original point. He charged them with this because they had only seen a preview of what was to come. To be sure, they would see this scene again. To be sure, they would realize this glory again. And what's true for them is true for you and I. We too will see Jesus in all of his glory. We too will see Jesus with the saints and the angels surrounding him, worshiping him and praising him. And we will be in that glory, giving praise and thanks to God for all of eternity. 
can't know anything about that properly until after Jesus is risen from the dead. And that resurrection only comes about after Jesus has died on the cross. See, there's no speaking of Jesus in his glory without speaking of Jesus crucified. In fact, the most glorious thing Jesus ever did was not transfigure before Peter, James, and John. The most glorious thing he ever did was put on our flesh so that he might suffer and die and hang on a cross bearing the sins of the world, submitting to the will of the Father as the one who has come to be crucified. The most glorious thing Jesus ever did was that he came not to be served in a tent as someone you could sort of go up and see like some guru on a mountain, no. The most glorious thing he did was that he came to not be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. Give his life as a ransom for you. The most glorious thing Jesus does for you is not establish a perfect Christian nation or even make all your worldly self-serving dreams come true. No, the most glorious thing Jesus does is he bleeds and he dies and he rises for you. And because he has done this, he now sends forth this glorious proclamation, the most glorious proclamation we can possibly imagine that comes to you even this morning. The glorious proclamation from Christ in which he says to you, I am your Lord, for I am crucified for you. And you will be with me in glory because your sins are forgiven. And it's that forgiveness of sins promised and given to you from that crucified Lord that will indeed carry you and I into the glory of Christ. But there is no heavenly glory for sinners without the, glorious crucified, or without the crucified glory of the Savior. But you have that glory. You know Jesus crucified. You know Jesus risen from the dead. You know the whole story. So that now you can gladly and boldly proclaim the good news that Jesus has come to be our Savior through his dying and through his rising. I know this story too. So now I can come here this morning and gladly and boldly proclaim to you that you are forgiven and the glory of heaven is coming for you. Amen. We pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the promises of forgiveness and life that are won for us through the cross. Lord, we pray that we would never be found speaking of Christ apart from him crucified. Help us, St. Paul says, to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Proclaim that he is risen from the dead for our salvation. And may our faith be bound by this wonderful work of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.